We'll hear argument first in case 05381, Weyerhaeuser Company versus Ross Simmons Hardwood Lumber Company. Mr. Pincus. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The question in this case is whether the standard that this Court adopted in Brook Group to determine whether a seller's prices violate the antitrust laws because they are too low also should apply in assessing the claim that a buyer's purchase prices are illegally high. We submit that the Brook Group test applies before the, because the four key underpinnings of the Court's ruling apply fully here. First, there's a high risk of mistaking aggressive competition for anti-competitive behavior. Increasing the prices that are paid for inputs, like lowering sales prices, is the mechanism by which a firm competes. It's the result that we would expect from a buyer's ordinary competitive instincts. So the conduct targeted here is on its face identical to core pro-competitive conduct. It's also very hard to distinguish losses suffered by a more inefficient competitor from hard to to anti-competitive behavior. But the antitrust laws Can I ask you a preliminary question before you get too far into your argument? Is it your understanding that the instructions of the jury were that finding that predatory price cutting was in itself sufficient to establish a Section 2 violation? I know the Court of Appeals opinion reads that way, but is your, your view, do you think the, the jury was so instructed? Yes. Our position is that that is what the jury uh, was instructed because the, the predatory pricing instruction said one of plaintiff's contentions is that defendant purchased more logs than needed or paid a higher price for logs than necessary in order to prevent the plaintiffs from obtaining the logs they needed at a fair price. I'm reading from page 14A of the appendix to the petition. And then it concluded, if you find this to be true, you may regard it as an anti-competitive act. You may regard it as an anti-competitive act, but it does not say you may regard it as a violation of Section 2. No. And if I read, as I read the instructions, it did require there be three elements of the violation of Section 2, which two of which were not discussed by the uh, Court of Appeals. Well, Your Honor, I, there's, no, uh, there's no contention here uh, about monopoly power. The, the, the focus here is on the conduct element of Section 2. <laughs> you concede there was monopoly power? We're not disputing it before this Court. But is that relevant to the question whether if there's monopoly power plus an intent to preserve that power or acquire that power plus an anti-competitive act, is that a violation of Section 2? Well, Your Honor, our our view is what the Court has said in cases like Trinco is that the test is uh, monopoly power and anti-competitive conduct. Those are the two elements. We're, we're not contesting the monopoly power element. We're looking at whether there was anti-competitive But you do agree that the, that the conduct was not itself sufficient to establish a violation? The question is whether the conduct plus the monopoly power. Yes, because this violation. is a claim under Section 2. Uh, there would have to be either monopoly power or a dangerous probability of achieving monopoly power. We're, it's single firm conduct, so there would have so, to be. And so you're, you're arguing not only that the, the pricing conduct was not itself sufficient to prove a violation, but it also was not even an anti-competitive act which may give rise to damages. Yes, Your Honor, we're, we're arguing both things. I, I think I, I'm not sure that there's much space between the two, but to the extent there is, we're arguing. Well, both. obviously, if they're just an anti-competitive act without a violation of the statute, there will be, be no basis for damages. I think that's right, but I, I, I guess I think the way the court has approached determining an anti-competitive act, anti-competitive conduct, is it's the kind of conduct that, when engaged in by a monopolist or an entity that has a dangerous probability of achieving it, it's a violation of the statute. But, of course, in the Brook case, it wouldn't have even had to have been a monopolist if, if they engaged in the conduct in that case. Well, because Brook involved a claim under the Robinson-Patman Act. Correct. 
but the lower courts have, and this court in uh, the Trinco case have certainly interpreted the Brooks standard as also applying to claims under Section 2. And, in, in fact, the court explicitly said that in Brook Group. Uh, as I say, the, the, first, the first critical underpinning is the, uh, is the risk of, of mistaking aggressive competition for anti-competitive behavior. Second, this case involves well, — it's a little different here in that in the Brook Group cases, of course, the, the — the alleged anti-competitive conduct was pricing too low, which has at least a direct benefit to consumers, either in the short term, certainly in the short term and, and arguably in the long term as well. While here, that is not the form in which the anti-competitive conduct, uh, that's not the form the anti-competitive conduct takes. So isn't that a reason not to think that we should apply the Brook Group test to this situation? Your Honor, we don't, we don't think that, that that difference is a distinction that warrants uh, a different test for several reasons. First of all, we are dealing here with single-firm pricing conduct, and it's recognized that that's key to the proper functioning of the markets. As, as the Court said in Professional Engineers, if pricing is the central nervous system of the economy. It, it allocates goods. It ensures that, uh, that they're allocated to their most e- efficient use. Uh, here, although there's no immediate benefit to, to consumers, there's an immediate benefit to the sellers uh, of the logs, who certainly benefit when competition drives up the prices that they achieve. And, and we think that the Sherman Act uh, protects them and gives them the benefit of full competition just as much as it does consumers. Well, although the Have court- we ever identified that as a benefit that the antitrust laws try to achieve, that people get higher prices for what they sell? Yes, in Mandeville Farms, which was a Section 1 case, the Court did talk about the fact that the antitrust laws protect sellers as well as buyers, and that was a case in which there was allegedly a Section 1 conspiracy to price too low, and the Court said that's per se unlawful. So so in Brook Group, we've said it's a benefit when prices are low to consumers, and in this other case, we've said it's a benefit when prices are high to suppliers. Because the, the benefit, I think, that the Court is looking at in both cases is not the particular price levels, but, but in achieving and ensuring free uh, price competition because of the central role that price plays in the economy. That's what the Court is trying to protect in, in, in professional real estate, uh, in professional engineers. I assume it's a benefit to consumers uh, if the supply of the needed goods is increased because uh, a higher price is being paid for those needed goods. And I assume when a higher price is paid, more of those goods will be forthcoming, which will benefit consumers who want those goods. That is our second argument. But well, you don't have it. that in this case, do you? Because I, I, thought the, I thought one of the arguments on the other side was the, the inelasticity of the, of the supply, so that no matter what they were paying, basically the same amount of wood was, was ultimately going to get processed. Is, is that correct? Your Honor, the claim is that the that supply was relatively inelastic, not, not that it was perfectly inelastic. As, and as long as the supply market is not perfectly inelastic, an increase in price will lead to more supply, maybe not as much as if there were higher elasticity, but more. But there's another benefit to consumers here, which is that if uh, one would expect that a buyer bidding more can make a more efficient use of the product and therefore generate more output. And that output expansion, which doesn't depend on supply expansion, is also beneficial to consumers because that means there will be more output in the downstream market and a, a corresponding decrease in price. So we have those two benefits to consumers, and we also have the fact that, as the Court has said in Professional Engineers, the Sherman Act reflects a judgment that price competition generally 
uh, free and open price competition will, will produce lower prices and better goods and services, and the Court has not required that that be traced to consumer welfare in every particular I case. Pres- I, I presume it could lead to lower consumer prices, too. If, if you have a firm that has developed a new, a new technique for processing the logs, and uh, it can process them cheaper and faster, and uh, sell them for a lower price, but in, in greater volume, and thereby make even more profit, uh, that firm would be willing to pay more for those logs, even though it would sell them for less than, than competitors might sell them. That's exactly right, Justice Scalia, and that's what the record reflects here, that Weyerhaeuser invested in its lumber mills and uh, created a process that got more value out of a log. Uh, the, the record uh, reflects that, that uh, plaintiffs, for example, did not do that, and, and there is uh, testimony uh, that plaintiff's mill was quite relatively inefficient compared to Weyerhaeuser. Weyerhaeuser invested new processes that had less waste, produced more output, as, as Justice Scalia suggested, and therefore it was able to sell, uh, sell that output at a lower price and still make a profit because it was getting more output for log and could therefore pay more for the log. Was, was there any argument in the trial court or in the briefs in the Court of Appeals as to how to um, calculate cost? You basically have two markets. Uh, you don't usually think of cost uh, when, when you buy something. Uh, but um, was, was there any argument as, as to how to determine whether or not this was below cost in the Brook Group sense? Well, our, our view, Justice Kennedy, there really wasn't because the, the district judge had made clear his view uh, in the pretrial motions that there wasn't a, uh, a need to prove prices. Like so that was the end of it in the trial court. But our position, and, and there's certainly been some uh, writing on this in the literature, is that uh, what one does is take the cost of uh, producing the output, which includes the allegedly predatory price of the log, and here logs are 75 percent of the cost, so it's a very big cost, Compare those costs to the to the revenues that are received in the downstream market, and if those revenues uh, exceed costs, then you're in a position where the the uh, defendant is behaving perfectly economically rationally. If they're but less, you is, then you go on to recruitment. How do, you, how do you determine the price of the the logs? Because we uh, the charge is that some logs were purchased at an excessive price. And if we were dealing with only those logs to determine costs, that's one thing. But we're also in this picture is that some of the logs came from warehouses' own land and some came from long-term contracts that it had. And those, the price was not inflated on those. So if you take those into account, you may get one figure, but if you take only the high bid logs, you might get a different picture. So how, what is it? How do you determine cost? Do you look at all the logs that were purchased or only the ones that were allegedly bid up? No, you would look, you'd look, Your Honor, at, at, all of the, at all of the logs. Just as in, in the downstream market, uh, if you have a sell-side case, you look at, uh, you look at prices of, of all sales. Uh, here, uh, it's interesting that the, the record reflects that uh, plaintiff 
received uh, more than between 30 and 50 percent of its logs from the same uh, kind of long-term sources that it argues that Weyerhaeuser received them from. So in this case, there really isn't the kind of disparity. But but our position would be that that you add all of those up and compare them to well, the revenue. It's not clear to me that we have to get into this, but if, if we do, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure about your answer to Justice Ginsburg's question. If you have your own logs that you own already, and if you have logs on a long-term contract, the only relevant logs are the logs that both people are competing for. That's the only relevant market that we're talking about insofar as the, uh, the, the purchaser is concerned. And it might and, be. And if, and if Wirehazard wanted to drive somebody out of the market, then they go after the, uh, the logs which are open to both parties. And, Your Honor, as the Court observed in Brook Group, there really wasn't a need there to get into how the test works, and, and we think there isn't here. We think the issue is symmetrical, and it might be that, that the focus is on uh, the incremental costs that are associated with the alleged predatory volume, and therefore that might focus on, the, on those incremental costs. But in this case, there's no dispute that whatever the measure of cost, there's, there's been no challenge to the position that, that warehouses' uh, prices were above those costs. Um, let me just turn back to, uh, to the other two reasons why we think Brook Group applies, because, uh, because I think they're important. Uh, the, the third is it's much more likely that the high bids here were, gonna, were a result of legitimate competition than of anti-competitive effort. As this Court has observed, both in Brook Group and Matsushita, predatory conduct is self-deterring. To engage in it, the defendant has to be willing to incur a near-term loss against the hope of higher returns later. And as the Court explained in those cases, the loss is definite, but the game depends on a number of imponderables. So there is some self-deterring. And finally, a test that provides no guidance threatens false positives that that will deter uh, the very hard competition that our economy requires and that helps uh, our economy reach its most efficient state. As Justice Breyer put it for the First Circuit in in Town of Concord, antitrust rules must be clear enough for lawyers to explain them to their clients, especially in a sensitive area like pricing. And certainly the rule that the the Ninth Circuit adopted here has none of that clarity, and we think that the Court's Brook Group decision and that test does. May I ask this question? Supposing the evidence was perfectly clear that the company did engage in a plan to get a, a total monopoly, and there were minutes of the board of directors says, and in order to do this, we've got to drive company X out of business. And so you, we want you to compete in every transaction with company X that you can and, and buy the logs at a higher price. Would that be an anti-competitive act, even if it did not result in loss to, to the defendant? And the, the only anti-competitive conduct alleged was pricing conduct? It, they, no, the anti-competitive con- the, the, the plan is to drive the company out of business. And the only anti-competitive conduct, other than proving the whole objective, is that you pick on this one competitor and outbid him every time you can. Could that possibly give rise to a damage claim? No, it wouldn't, Your Honor. And, and e- even if the whole purpose was to drive it out of business? Even if that was the Pursuant whole purpose. Pursuant to a plan to acquire a monopoly. And the reason for that, Justice Stevens, is that it's very hard to distinguish, especially for the judicial system, to distinguish between hard-fought competition and anti-competitive intent if all we're looking is what's in people's mindset, as just Judge Easterbrook wrote in his A.A. Poultry decision. But why is it so hard if you take Justice Stevens' premise that there's an, that there's an agreement and we, and we take that as a given, as a given premise? Well, because there won't be a given premise in every case, Your Honor. And the, the problem is the Court has to write rules that will, that will govern conduct uh, 
primary conduct of business people in the market. And a rule that says if you can prove intent, then you don't have to worry about prices and costs is a rule that opens the door to uh, second-guess, judicial second-guessing of no, prices. Only intent plus monopoly power. You have but to be able to prove monopoly power, too. You do, Your there Honor. Too but many cases that fit this. As the Court has recognized in, section two, in the Section 2 context, uh, the, the problem of deterring pro-competitive conduct is even more serious because you don't have the threshold requirement of proof of a conspiracy as one does in Section 1. We're dealing with unilateral conduct. And so — No, but no, unilateral conduct where you have monopoly power. There aren't too many of these cases, you know. Well, Your Honor, market definition is a complicated, uh, complicated issue, and it may be hard for business. It was an people. issue that was resolved by the jury in this case, and I don't understand you'd be disputing the resolution of that issue. What do we do in the correlative situation where there's an allegation of predatory selling rather than predatory buying? If you had the same situation posed by Justice Stevens, namely evidence that you're trying to drive the uh, competitor out of business, wouldn't, wouldn't that establish a violation? It would not establish a violation, Your Honor. In fact, Brook, the Brook Group Court dealt with that very case because the dissent in Brook Group pointed out that the district court in that case had held that the intent evidence was amongst the most powerful that had ever been uh, been presented in any case. And it still said, even though there was it clear evidence of intent. did monopoly. That did not involve monopoly power. But it involved the, the test for predatory pricing, Your Honor, under, under uh, Robinson-Pantman, but the Court said its test was perfectly applicable to Section 2, and the lower courts have certainly applied that test in just that way in Section 2 cases. And if the rule would be that even in the predatory selling situation, intent can override the price, cost, and recoupment requirements, then you're in a situation where there's no ability for business people to know in advance when low prices are justified. And all we think is that there should be symmetry. If the Court has no further questions, I'll reserve the balance. Thank you, Mr. Pincus. Mr. Shanmugam. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Aggressive bidding by the buyer of an input, no less than aggressive price cutting by the seller of a finished product, is usually pro-competitive. Because a claim of predatory bidding is simply the flip side of a claim of predatory pricing, the Brook Group standard for predatory pricing claims should apply to predatory bidding claims as well. And in our view, the Court of Appeals erred in this case by sanctioning a broader and more subjective standard of liability. In Brook Group, this Court adopted its now-familiar two-pronged standard for predatory pricing claims, despite recognizing that each prong of that standard might permit some anti-competitive price cutting. The Court was willing to tolerate that modest degree of under-inclusion because, in the Court's own words, the mechanism by which a firm engages in predatory pricing is the same mechanism by which a firm stimulates competition, namely by lowering its prices. And the Court explained that a broader or less precise standard of liability would run the risk of prohibiting or chilling some pro-competitive price cutting. In our view, the same analysis can apply to a claim of predatory bidding. Because aggressive bidding is usually pro-competitive, application of the Brook Group standard is warranted in order to avoid prohibiting or chilling pro-competitive conduct with regard to price in that context as well. The Court of Appeals in this case held that Brook Group was inapplicable to respondents' claim of predatory bidding. Would you describe the uh, hypothetical Justice Stevens posed to your, your brother? Would you describe that as just aggressive bidding? 
aggressive is, you know, it's kind of a good term when you're talking about competition. But what if it's uh, purposely bidding higher uh, than you know your rival can afford? Well, Mr. Chief Justice, I understood Justice Stevens's hypothetical, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, to posit a case in which there was dynamite evidence that the defendant had a monopolistic or exclusionary intent. But in our view, that is insufficient to state a Section 2 claim. One has to have exclusionary conduct as well. No, you have to have the monopoly power as well. Well, that is also true. And with regard to a claim of in, in, in your view, if, as the jury was instructed in this case, there was proof of monopoly power and intent to maintain or preserve that power, plus anti-competitive acts, does the anti-competitive act have to be in and of itself a violation of the Sherman Act? Well, I think you need to have all three of those elements in order to state a <laughs> And if you do have all three, is that enough to prove a violation? That would be enough to state a claim for attempted monopolization under this Court's decision. And isn't that how the jury was instructed in this case? In our view, the jury was instructed that it would be sufficient to establish an anti-competitive act to find that uh, petitioner yes, but it, it was not instructed that it would be sufficient to find a violation of Section 2. By, by those that conduct. Is that not That is correct, Justice Stevens, and the jury was also instructed, and in our view, the jury was properly instructed with regard to the other two elements, namely a dangerous probability of monopolization and a specific intent to monopolize. The sole question before this Court is what constitutes exclusionary conduct for purposes of Section 2, what constitutes it regardless of whether it's a claim of attempted monopolization or actual monopolization. Well, well, go back to my hypothetical. Suppose you have the first two elements and you say in order to drive this company out of business, we want you to compete with them and get the logs of whatever cost it takes. Would that, would that be a, an, a, an anti-competitive act? No, Justice Stevens. That Even if solely for the be sole purpose of driving the company out of business in order in the, to accomplish your goal of getting a monopoly? That would be evidence, and it may be powerful evidence, of a monopolistic intent, though courts have noted that even with regard to that requirement, it is famously difficult to distinguish between a legitimate competitive intent on the one hand and an illegitimate no, monopolistic no, I'm, I'm assuming this is not offered as evidence of intent. There's independent evidence of both intent and monopoly power. With those two elements established, would this, the kind of evidence I described, be evidence of an injury to the, to the plaintiff that could be uh, uh, actionable in damages? Uh, no, Justice Stevens. You would need to have objective evidence that the defendant met both of the prongs of the Brook Group requirement. I'm, I'm assuming oh, you need to, to meet the, the prongs of the, of the uh, Booker test, even if you otherwise prove a violation of Section 2? Well, I'm not quite sure what it means to say that you otherwise prove a violation. You prove a a monopoly power plus an intent to maintain or acquire it. And that is insufficient. You have to have some action. That's insufficient to prove a violation of Section 2? It is insufficient to prove a violation of Section 2 because you have to have some conduct that is classed as exclusionary. And in our view, that is the content that the Burke Group standard supplies. It specifies the conduct that you need to have. And that conduct is the defendant suffering a loss in the short term and having a dangerous probability of recouping that loss in the long term. I assume you could have a company that, uh, that, that has dynamite evidence of, of uh, seeking to monopolize, and uh, the means that they choose is just idiotic. For example, they say, we're going to try to get a monopoly by buying these logs at a lower price, as, at, as low a price as, as possible. You would have the two elements— uh, monopoly power, intent to monopolize, but you wouldn't have an act 
that, uh, that constitutes uh, anti-competitive conduct. Justice Scalia. And that's what you're asserting is, is the case here. You could have an incompetent monopolist more generally or an incompetent predator in this specific context. And I think that the only other thing I would say with regard to this colloquy is that the Court really did confront this issue in Burke Group. There was fairly strong evidence of monopolistic intent, and the majority opinion — But there was no evidence of monopoly power, and it wasn't even remotely an issue in that case. That's right, and it wasn't an issue no, simply because it was a Robinson-Patman Act. Act case, and all that is required under the Robinson-Patman Act is the uh, a possibility of harm to competition, and there was some disagreement about whether a showing had been made of that requisite possibility between the majority opinion and your dissenting opinion. But I don't think that there was any disagreement in Burke Group with regard to the relevant standard for exclusionary conduct. Even the dissenting opinion recognized that recoupment would be necessary in order to state a predatory pricing claim uh, in the Robinson-Patman Act. Would your answer be the same if you added to Justice Stevens' um, hypothetical very high barriers of entry that would prevent other competitors from entering the market after the, <clears throat> the target was driven out? High barriers to entry, Justice Alito, would be very relevant to the inquiry under the second prong of the Burke Group standard, uh, namely whether the defendant had a dangerous probability of recoupment in the long term. And indeed, in many predation cases, many predatory pricing cases in the 13 years since Brook Group, uh, barriers to entry have been absolutely vital in uh, resolving predatory pricing claims at the summary judgment stage, because typically defendants will make the argument that the absence of barriers to entry make the possibility of recoupment unlikely. But that is a consideration that is built into the Brook Group standard, and it certainly would be part of the Burke Group analysis in the predatory bidding context uh, as well. Uh, I want to say just one thing in response to Justice Ginsburg and Justice Kennedy's questions to my friend Mr. Pincus about the question of the appropriate measure of cost uh, if Burke Group were to apply to predatory bidding claims. Uh, as in Burke Group itself, we believe that it is unnecessary for this Court to specify the exact method of calculating cost in this case. But The position of the United States more generally, both in the predatory pricing context and in the predatory bidding context, is that a court should look to a defendant's incremental cost. And in this context, that would mean looking to the amount of the input that was the subject of the alleged predation. So in this case, the amount of logs that petitioner allegedly predatorily purchased on the open market. And such an incremental approach, to be sure, is not without its difficulties in application. And for that reason, a number of lower courts in the predatory pricing context have instead looked to average variable cost or other measures as a proxy for incremental cost. But we believe that in a case such as this one, looking to incremental costs may be useful because it effectively excludes from the analysis any potential cross-subsidization whether by virtue of the fact that, in this case, for example, petitioner may have harvested logs from its own lands. There are claims in this case that petitioner entered into various exclusive dealing arrangements as well, obtained logs at a lower price on that basis. And an incremental approach has the virtue of focusing only on that portion of the market that is the subject of the alleged predation claim. You also, I take it, have to have an equally incremental, uh, uh, limited approach uh, on, the, on the recoupment analysis then. 
I mean, your recoupment analysis would have to be symmetrical with your cost analysis. Yes, that's absolutely true, Justice Souter. And, again, this is an issue that the lower courts have been grappling with in the predatory pricing context, and I by no means want to suggest that it is always an easy analysis in the predatory pricing context. Professor Arita's treatise has hundreds of pages on the appropriate calculation of cost, but I think that the important thing to remember with regard to the below-cost pricing prong of the Burke Group analysis is that it does provide an objective yardstick by which a defendant's loss can be measured. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Shanmugam. Mr. Hagland. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, in this Court's antitrust jurisprudence over the last 25 years, market realities have consistently trumped per se rules. The same approach should apply here. Brook Group's per se rule, which carved out a special exception to the standard rule of reason balancing test in Section 2 cases, should not be extended to the buy side. No safe harbor per se rule is justified here because raising input prices, unlike cutting output prices, is moving prices in the wrong direction for consumers. But it, but it does hurt the supply. And the, the antitrust laws are just as, I don't know, just as, but they're just as concerned about a group of small farmers or a group of small growers or a group of small fishermen faced with a monopsony buyer as they are with a group of consumers uh, having to fight off a monopoly seller. Justice I mean, Breyer, that's pretty well established, isn't it? I well, I'd, I'd like to point out that the Mandeville Farms case that Mr. Pincus cited does not stand for the same. No, no. Congress has actually passed special legislation, but the Mandeville Farms is is consistent with the farmers' cooperatives, and so you want me to write the proposition that the antitrust laws are not concerned. Oh, absolutely. The monopoly buyer who would in fact exploit a group of uh, small suppliers. Farms? Absolutely not. Okay, but. In this particular context, which the Ninth Circuit repeatedly emphasized, in an inelastic market like this one, raising input prices is not going to increase supply. And well, that can't possibly be right, can it? I mean, if, in fact, the object here is to strike, is to, suppose their object is what you say. Their object is, in fact, to try to get a monopoly on the buying side over a group of small woodsmen. Now, they might do that if they drove out all the buying competitors. And now what are they going to try to do? What they will try to do if they get that terrible monopoly, which would be bad. Drive prices down. Right. Drive prices way down, below what the woodsman could get for them. And if that's going to have any effect, aside from an income effect, it will leave some of them to go to the bread line or go to other places where they have other jobs at lesser revenue than they would get by staying in the woods business and selling at a reasonable price. That would be an antitrust concern. Absolutely. And that is exactly what Weyerhaeuser's plan was here, as shown by their own materials, that their plan was, and in fact they did foresee and project that log prices would go down in 2001. So where we are is at the problem. The problem is the same as at the buying side. What we have is possibly a very bad motive and very bad effects. On the other hand, low prices are good for the consumer. But you're not Here we have bad effects, bad possibilities. On the other hand, higher prices are good for the woodsman. So we need rules to separate, to separate the sheep from the goats. 
And our side is proposing a rule. And the rule simply is, don't count this as bad conduct unless the person who pays the money for the goods is, in fact, buying so many goods that later on, when he tries to sell them, he will incur a loss. Now, I would have thought for 40 years that was a traditional idea. If you're trying to decide whether people are hogging goods unnecessarily for bad purposes, or rather storing up nuts for winter for good purposes, that a very good key to that is do these people expect in the long run to make money out of this without driving those victims out? If the answer is yes, they can make money on the market, they're storing up nuts for winter. It's good. And if the answer is no, it's bad. That's called the recoupment test. I don't think that's new. I think it's old. And I'm not sure what your view of it is. Well, as to Brook Group, and what the Court's being asked to do here, Justice Breyer, is to go down the same path that it did in Albrecht versus Herald Company in 68, when it agreed to treat completely symmetrically minimum and maximum vertical resale price restraints. Later on, in State Oil Company versus Kahn, the Court abandoned and accepted Justice Harlan's dissent. Quite, it was I, wrong I, I'm to totally with those. you, but I just don't think this is the same as retail versus maximum price restraints. That's but, a whole other kettle of fish. And, and what I'm interested, I guess, my question particularly is, I proposed one test, not two. But it might be that my test encompasses the dollar test and incremental cost and so forth. What do you think of my one test? Well, one test is if they're not going to make money legitimately out of this in the long run, eh, it's bad unless they can explain it away. But if they are, it's okay. The problem with granting a safe harbor for uh, above-cost input purchases is that it does not uh, work well in this context, especially in an inelastic market. The suggestion that you can simply use incremental cost is not a workable approach here, if you look at the facts in this case. Well, what about the fact that the, the, the woodsmen in Justice Breyer's uh, story are uh, rational actors as well? And they don't, it, don't have to be geniuses to realize that they're in a better shape having two buyers rather than just one, so maybe they forego the extra 50 cents a log or whatever tree uh, it is in the short term and sell enough to keep the other company in business. I mean, they can make that decision themselves, or they can make the decision as rational actors that they're better off having more money that they can then use to buy more alder saplings that they can plant for the future. And either way, it benefits the consumer. Well, not that's not quite correct, because the signals that the higher input prices show, yes, they do generally incent more production in, in a typical market. Here, however, where you have a product that takes 30 to 50 years' time in production, the price, higher price signals when they're sent by an, a monopsonist, like Weyerhaeuser in this case, actually send a very powerful message to tree farmers not to replant alder despite those high prices. And there was evidence in the follow-on cases that referenced that. It was alleged in our complaint in this case but not actually backed up by any testimony at trial, 
that tree farmers in Oregon and Washington were actually electing not to replant alder. And as Professor Noel notes in his uh, Law Review article in the uh, issue of the Antitrust Law Journal, which, uh, by the way, is the only uh, error that we, uh, half of this issue is devoted to this subject. It's the sum total of, of literature devoted to predatory overbidding in this area. And what Professor Noel notes is that where you have localized monopsonies, the result is when the monopsony is in full flower, a misallocation of resources between regions. The highly productive forest lands of the Pacific Northwest won't have as much alder in the future because of the significant signals sent by a monopsonist, even when they're engaged in that scheme. The seller is happy if he has mature alder to sell at that time to get the good price, but he is not going to replant because he sees that 30 years down the road he will not have a competitive marketplace within which to sell his timber. And that was the reality in this case. Now, well, if, he is, if he is that rational and foresighted, why isn't he rational and foresighted enough to know that he ought to be selling some to the other, uh, the, the other processor, even if that processor is not bidding as much? Well, we did actually have some record evidence in this case that at least a few people were doing that. One of the major suppliers of, plaint of, of the respondent here, Ross Simmons, was a company called Longview Fiber, which made it a very sophisticated publicly held company, made it a practice to sell most of its volume to Ross Simmons on a market basis because it did not want the, the eventuality of not having Ross Simmons in that competitive circle with Weyerhaeuser. Most small woodland owners, however, who may only be in the market once every five years because that's the nature of their rotation of the age classes of the timber that they've got, are not in that kind of sophisticated position because they're in the market so infrequently to make that kind of a judgment. Well, if we don't take the, the Brook Group approach, is the alternative to ask the jury to do what the instructions in this case no, it's ask them not. to do to, to decide whether Weyerhaeuser bought more logs than it needed uh, in order to prevent its rivals from uh, obtaining the logs that they needed at a fair price? How is uh, a jury, to a lay jury, to decide whether a company like Weyerhaeuser bought more logs than it needed or what, what is a fair price? We don't contend that the instruction was perfect here. But if one looks at the instruction as a whole and but you all think it was sufficient. Pardon me? You think it was sufficient enough? In this case, it was legally sufficient. And I'd uh, point out that this Court very recently has issued a decision in the first case of the term, Ayers versus Belmontes, where you looked at the question of uh, the catch-all mitigation factor in California in the penalty phase of a capital murder case. And you looked at the instruction and interpreted it in terms of the closing arguments, the evidence, and the other instructions as a whole. Who proposed this, the instruction in this case? The instruction, the, the, the paragraph that is subject to the great criticism, criticism on the other side, was a paragraph that was drafted by the district judge and handed out near the end of the trial and then commented on by the lawyers in uh, a prior There was to, no request to charge on this point by the plaintiff? That's, as to the issue of predatory pricing, plaintiff, as we make clear in our brief, actually submitted a predatory pricing instruction three weeks before the trial. You tend to be over-inclusive pre-trial. 
Defendant, on the other hand, surprisingly submitted no such instruction on predatory pricing. The judge submitted a paragraph that had something more than what the current or the ultimate paragraph contained. There was a debate over whether it needed to be, whether it was consistent with Brook Group. I agreed with the other side that it did not have both components of the Brook Group test. Judge Panner and I had a colloquy where ultimately he was going to turn one paragraph into two, include a Brook Group test. We then withdrew our request for that instruction. Weyerhaeuser objected to the, the thinned-down version of the ultimate paragraph. But the interesting thing about Weyerhaeuser's uh, uh, relationship to this instruction is that they really invited the linguistic framework of this bought more than they needed. What, what or does that mean? What, what does a fair price in this, con in this context mean? Does it mean the price that's necessary in order to keep an inefficient competitor in business? Well, what it meant in this case, Justice Alito, is that it meant what, how much did Weyerhaeuser artificially increase the log market above where it otherwise would have been? We had several experts and a number of uh, both industry and forest economists testify that for 20-plus years, log prices had been following lumber. There was an equilibrium in the market. Then you get why, the why is that the standard of fairness? It's I mean, that, that, you know, that, that, that may be fine, uh, but how does, how does a jury, A, what's the authority for saying that is the standard of fairness, and, and B, how does a jury know that? The, the, if you look at the Ninth Circuit opinion, the Ninth Circuit made it clear that the instructions as a whole provided sufficient guidance. Nowhere in the case, as we tried it, did we attempt to, to exploit the instruction in the way that Weyerhaeuser suggests happened. Maybe you didn't, but that basically left the jury on a, on a free float, well, didn't it? I don't think so if you look at the evidence. The evidence that we presented included a forest economist who presented three different scenarios where he identified how much Weyerhaeuser had artificially increased log prices above where they would have been but for their anti-competitive behavior. We in no way went to the jury in closing saying, award what you think is fair. We relied completely on that evidence. And, in fact, the jury, which included a Ph.D. Uh, in physics in a high-tech industry, an accountant, the head of a chain store, uh, and a banker, and a retired farmer, they looked at the evidence and they actually, to the dollar, picked one of those market-based scenarios for how much was the market elevated. Okay. Let's, let's assume I, I, I accept your sort of Belmonte's analysis here. If we were to approve of that instruction, in effect, as you want us to do, and we also believe that on its face something more has got to be said than merely the word fair, what proposition would we say must be included in that instruction to make the so-called fairness instruction a, a, a sensible one that can be consistently applied? And we don't contend that it was a perfect instruction. We think it would be perfectly appropriate. No, I, I, re if, I realize if, that. And I'm saying we're, if, if we follow your lead, we're going to try to take that and make it a, a closer to perfect instruction. And what should we say must be added to it? 
It's quite simple. If you look at that paragraph, there are two pieces of it. One of them, one portion says that you can regard it as an anti-competitive act if defendant purchased more logs than it needed. Don't think that needs to be improved because that's easy to figure out. And here we had evidence that they continued. Why? Why is it easy to figure out? And Justice Breyer brought up the stockpiling. How do you know whether they're storing it for a time when the supply is short or they're just letting it go to rack and ruin in order to put this competitive out of business? Justice Ginsburg, you will know because of the evidence in the case. If the, plaint, if the defendant is able to show that they were storing up this uh, extra input against the prospect of a, of a price hike in the future or because they were uh, uh, out trying to get enough volume for some promotion for a customer that was going to significantly increase their purchases, then you'd have a different kind of case. We have a situation where they warehoused uh, large, unprecedented high volumes of lumber because what did they, they say they need I mean when you why do you need all this PhD guy up there they offer why don't you why don't you just prove what you just said we did they have more oh, fine if you then why do you need all these other instructions about pricing or else I, I suppose the only reason you need them is if there's maybe a dispute as to whether it was in their economic interest in the absence of any intent to monopolize these people to buy all these logs or not and so it would be very interesting if you have a way of proving that they did not need these for any legitimate purpose, a matter which is likely to be disputed. Well, I think the hard thing in these cases is to prove that. And if you can tell me how you prove that without giving the jury an instruction something like, look to see whether they could sell them reasonably at a profit or Look to see them if they can't sell them at a profit, whether they could recoup whatever they're losing later. Or, or, and you fill in some blanks, and now I'll have some candidates for tests. Well, as to the pay to higher price than necessary, the language we would suggest could be used in another case and, and passed on by this court no. is the following. Paid a higher price than necessary to move the log market to higher levels than otherwise would have prevailed in order to injure competition. Oh, but of course, I want to injure competition always when I, in fact, sell at a lower price that I very much hope my competitor can't possibly meet. Indeed, we'll go out of business. I cheer. I would love to get a monopoly. I would love to make a better product, lower prices, etc. You see the problem. And but so that's, but you've but, told the jury there on that instruction. But here they can find this person guilty, even if all he wants to do is so second-guess that market that he gets the logs and will sell them at a huge profit later on in a competitive selling market. We don't have a situation here, Justice Breyer, where Weyerhaeuser presented evidence that they were the most efficient and able to pay higher prices. Weyerhaeuser presented no quantitative evidence that it was the lowest cost producer in terms of cost. Suppose they're the highest cost producer. Suppose still they think by buying these logs we later can make a profit when we resell them on the competitive market. See, the reason they're coming up with this test is they don't think you can give, the reason the SG is, is, is they don't think that you can produce a better one. So I'm listening. Well, one of the reasons that 
one can't go in this direction here. Brook Group was a pricing-only case. As the briefs make clear and the decision made clear, if that had been a standard monopolization case, it would have been out the door on summary judgment because the defendant was a 12 percent player. They had no prospect of, of, uh, of attempted or uh, a viable monopolization claim. Here we have a situation where warehousers' pricing conduct deliberately and artificially pushing the market up through a variety of mechanisms was also interconnected and linked to complementary other conduct that we think set the table for the effectiveness of their strategy in elevating the log market that our client was participating in. Bear in mind that, that at uh, JA901, we have a warehouser document showing that very significant foreclosure from their uh, exclusive contracts in, the for in Oregon, for example, this is a document that shows that 62% of the market was covered through either exclusive uh, purchase arrangements between warehouser and uh, large landowners, uh, or non-efficiency-based trades were, the, uh, the, the, were linked to the uh, exchange of the alder saw logs from that landowner. Only 33%, according to JA901, show, uh, in Oregon was projected to be uh, open market bidding. Warehouser acquired, when it was then at a 65% uh, market share, acquired uh, the dominant seller of, of built-in monopsony in British Columbia and its five 15- to 20-year exclusive forest licenses. That kind of foreclosure linked with the anti-competitive behavior they engaged in that was a variety of bidding practices. Some of it was overbuying. Some of it was uh, uh, manipulating bidding back and forth and then putting the, uh, the last bid in terms of that cost on the other side. I think it's important, I'd like to shift to uh, the instruction again and, and make the point that Weyerhaeuser never gave either the plaintiff in this case or the district judge the opportunity to consider a different instruction than was given here. And the fact that's demonstrably shown if one looks at page 43 of their opening brief in the Ninth Circuit. In the Ninth Circuit, they only took the position in the bulk of their brief that they were entitled to judgment as a matter of law on the basis of Brook Group. As to the ground or the, the contention. Do you, do you agree that you couldn't have made it on Brook Group because they were selling these uh, logs at a profit? I, I didn't quite hear that. Do just you agree time. that you could not have prevailed under the Brook Group we do because uh, Weyerhaeuser was, was making a profit on these sales even though he, it had bid up the price of the logs? We do not agree as to uh, the evidence in this case. We have evidence in this case that we cited to in our brief that when you adjust as against the Longview Mill, which our client was literally right next door to, when you adjust for the fact that warehousers supplied half of the raw material needs of the Longview Mill at uh, way below market transfer prices, when you adjust those to the average price they paid other third parties for logs, the Longview Mill ran at a loss for a significant part of the, of the predation period. 
We do have the evidence in this case. To it's ultimately a jury question, I assume. If Brooke Group is applied. But that question to, was not put to the jury, right? That, that's correct. We withdrew the request for a Brooke Group instruction. But to finish my point about the fact that this. So that would, would you be entitled to a remand on that or not, given that you withdrew that? If the Court uh, concludes the Brook Group applies to this case, then the instruction was incomplete, it was not correct, and we'd be entitled to a remand and a chance to retry the case. Well, what about the recoupment prong, um, given that Weyerhaeuser doesn't have market power in the, the selling market and that mills were entering, new, new mills were coming online during this period? How would you satisfy the recoupment? Well, the, the recoupment is not in the output end of things. The recoupment is then is the opportunity to drive log costs down to recoup the extra cost you paid during the predatory period. And we had evidence in the record that a former executive from Weyerhaeuser testified that they'd used this strategy uh, multiple times, that when it was questioned by some in top management that that the head of the division would always say, once we either acquire or get rid of a competitor, we will recoup those costs many-fold. That's at JA260 Cliff Chulos. We also had at uh, JA903 a planning document in 2001 where Weyerhaeuser was uh, showing in that PowerPoint chart the expectation that log prices would be going down in 01, 02, 03, and that for every 2% change downward, it was an extra $2 million in uh, profits to the bottom line. There was no plan to pass on the benefits of those lower input uh, prices to consumers, obvious consumer uh, uh, lack of benefit in that uh, situation. And also, as to recoupment, if you look at JA 831 to 95, which are the year-end financials for the, the Weyerhaeuser uh, Alder Mills in Oregon, Washington, and D.C. during a, a roughly four-year period, you see a, monum- a huge uh, price differential between the prices in British Columbia and those prevailing in Oregon and Washington. We think there was every expectation on management's part to drive the prices down to the levels that prevailed in British Columbia, which works out to about $40 million a year, way, way above the amount they were spending in this predatory scheme, uh, predominantly in Oregon and Washington, because there is no competition in British Columbia. But I would like to point out that they never preserved the issue of whether or not the standard that the Ninth Circuit of uh, in dictum stated was, as a whole, sufficient to guide the jury as to a definition of anti-competitive conduct. At page 43 of their brief, after quoting this paragraph they so criticize, they note, although that statement of the law, this is 43 of the Ninth Circuit brief, not the blue brief that you have, although that statement of the law may have been acceptable when Reed Brothers was decided, it is not in the wake of Brook Group for reasons explained above. The point here is that they never made any charge in the Ninth Circuit that the instruction was flawed independent of Brook Group. Now, we concede if Brook Group applies, the instruction was, 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 is wrong and, and the case should be reversed and remanded. But the second point that they try to make in their briefing is not properly preserved. And, in fact, I'd like to point out that they contributed to the linguistic framework of this instruction in a very significant way. Uh, first — I'm losing you. What's the second point that they're trying to make besides the fact that, that this didn't conform to Brook Group? 
Well, they've also asserted in their briefing that as an independent ground for reversal, the instruction was so, so standardless that the verdict cannot stand. Regardless is, of But isn't that something that we've got to consider? Because if, 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 if we disagree with them on Brook Group, we've got to do it in the course of making a choice between a Brook Group instruction and something else. And the only something else we've got right now is, is what we have in this case, and, and we, ought to, we ought to decide whether, in fact, that is good enough. I, and, I, I agree so, with I mean, I think we've, they, they, they may not have made that an independent basis of reversal, but we've got to consider it. I agree with that, but I would like to point out these facts in terms of the way they contributed to it. They submitted jury instructions, just like us, based upon the ABA model instructions, Theirs are at JA 97 to 122 that use the words outside of this paragraph that we're talking about, fair, reasonable, or necessary, 18 times. They showed up 19 times in those instructions. In their opening and closing — I'll I'll, I'll stipulate that. Assuming they don't have a leg to stand on in complaint, we have still got to face what the alternative to a Brook Group kind of instruction is. Uh, and, and however they may have tried their case, we've still got the same problem. That's correct. And I suggest that you look to the type of formulation I gave a little earlier, where you're looking at how much did the defendant push the market to levels that uh, are above where it otherwise would have been. It's not too far from the test that is proposed by the states at page 29 of their brief, where they suggest it's a, that the conduct be measured by uh, whether it raised the price that the buyer's rivals had to pay for the input beyond a level that could be justified or explained by other market or exogenous factors and substantially affected the ability of the buyer's rivals to compete for the input. The eight states, all of which have concerns both as sellers into these vulnerable resource markets uh, and for citizens and companies in their own resource state, uh, laden states, whether it's minerals, whether it's timber, whether it's agriculture, they have that concern and they've offered that test. That's not too far from what I posited as a way to improve the instruction that, ju- that, that Weyerhaeuser invited. I'd like to make one further point on that subject, and that is if you look at, at the opening statement of their counsel, the closing, he used that very language. They were going to put on witnesses to, who would all state that they never bought more than they needed, they never paid more than necessary. That same litany was put to 13 different witnesses. Thank you, Mr. Hagelin. Uh, Mr. Pincus, you have two minutes remaining. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Just a couple of uh, points. With respect to the story of how this instruction came to be, um, in fact, it closely resembles some language that was requested by respondent that appears on page 93A of the, uh, of the joint appendix, which refers to uh, a test that uh, paying a price for logs that's higher than market value unnecessarily to drive out or injure competition. So I do think this is an instruction that, that comes from a uh, respondent. Uh, it's true that we did not request a Brook Group instruction because the district court had ruled that Brook Group didn't apply at the summary judgment phase. We did object to the instruction proposed by the district judge on the ground that it did not conform with Brook Group in order to preserve our argument here. And we believe that that 
uh, objection gives the Court the power to uh, adopt an intermediate rule that it isn't exactly what, uh, what we requested, and, uh, and there are decisions in the Court of Appeals to that effect. With respect to the question about purchasing more logs than they needed, as we say in our briefs, we think that claim can't really be separated from the, the predatory pricing claim here, because the argument is that by purchasing more logs, the price was driven up, and it's the increased price that's the impact that respondent complains of. So creating a separate overbuying claim that relies on price for impact is the, would be the same thing as saying on the sell side, you can have an overselling claim regardless of whether you flunk the Brook Group standard with respect to prices, and that's just going to undercut the certainty that this Court has uh, prescribed. Uh, with respect to uh, the document that Mr. Hagland cited, 901A, about inputs, that uh, document is described in testimony in the Joint Appendix at 571A to 573A, and that's a hypothetical look at what the market might look like if current p- past purchasing patterns had continued. It's not a document that in any way says that the various sources of, of log supply were locked up, and it doesn't indicate that. And, in fact, there's nothing in the record to indicate uh, what the percentage of logs were that were available to Weyerhaeuser uh, by long-term contract, in contrast, as I said, to the testimony in the record that indicates that respondent got between uh, 30 and 50 percent of its logs through those long-term sources. Uh, with respect to the proper disposition of the case, uh, in the Boyle case, this Court uh, made clear that uh, where there's no, not sufficient evidence in the record — I'm sorry — Time you finish your sentence. Where there's not sufficient evidence in the record to go to the jury under the proper jury instruction, the, uh, the proper uh, outcome is for the claim to be uh, dropped from the case. Thank you, Mr. Pincus. The case is submitted.